Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It is good to see you this morning. Uh, let's give another round of applause to Morgan, would you? <laughs> I attended Moody Bible Institute, and in the years I was there, they used to have what they called Minutemen services, you know, Minutemen being ready in a minute. And we would all gather for a, um, a gathering like that, and uh, the president of the school would get up, and he would say, Doug Baker, come on up and give us the testimony. And you'd come up and you'd share, and Morgan, come on up and lead in worship. You know, and it was just like you never knew. You had to be ready in a minute was their point. And I think Morgan did a great job of that this morning. Yes. So this is the largest front-loading piece of equipment in the world. Guinness Book of World Records has documented that this is the biggest. It's called the Letourneau L2350. This weighs 550,000 pounds. That front loader will hold 144,000 pounds of dirt. It's got a 16-cylinder engine, diesel, 2,300 horsepower. How would you like to have that under the hood? <clears throat> its fuel tank holds 1,000 gallons. I would not want to fill that up. And the tires are 13 feet tall, 6 feet wide, and each one of them costs $126,000. This is what Tim Allen would call a big boy toy. <laughs> it was designed by a man by the name of R.G. Letourneau, Robert Letourneau, <clears throat> a Christian businessman and entrepreneur who truly loved Jesus. He was known as the Dean of Earth Moving. In fact, in World War II, because he was born in 1888, and he started making these in the 1920s or so, 70% um, of the earth-moving equipment used by the Allies to move mountains, build airfields, create new roads, were all built by Letourneau, 70% of them. He was indeed an incredible man. The highways that we drive on in the United States, 48,100 or 48,000 uh, miles of them were built with his machinery. So you can see why he's called the Dean of Earth Moving. He even in, in, um, created the very first uh, mobile offshore oil platform. By the end of his life, he held over 300 mechanical patents. This guy was amazing. Perhaps most amazing of all is that in his lifetime, he and his wife Evelyn decided to give 90% of their income to God on a regular basis and keep 10% for themselves. That is amazing. Imagine that. How could he do that? I mean, would any of us imagine ourselves ever doing that? We'll find out more about R.G. and his generosity in a little bit. But first of all, I want to have us look in the rearview mirror of our time together and, and think a little bit about the last 12 weeks here at Trinity as we've been working on 2 Corinthians, the first eight chapters of 2 Corinthians. And as we've been doing that, God has guided our thoughts and feelings about how to heal relational wounds. How do we do that as individuals, as a church? And I think this time for us has been really good overall. I think it's been good for us for a lot of reasons, but it's been good for us especially so that we could be prepared for what's next. So as we got into chapter 8 last week, and we're looking at chapter 9 this week, so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 9? From this point forward in Corinthians, Paul says, we've learned how to be healed, now let's learn how to be helpful and hopeful 
of a better future. Let's, let's turn the corner from healing and let's begin to move in a different direction and think about how God wants us to help others and to be hopeful as we do it. So God sets a new GPS setting for us. And uh, he says, I want you to help begin to bring other people back into wholeness. I want you to, now that you've been renewed, call other people back to hope. So in chapter 9 today, he takes us down this hopeful path that has marked great generosity. And, uh, and as we get into this, I want you to consider for a moment with me, um, when someone asks you or I, when someone asks us to give to a worthwhile cause, when they invite us to give a, a major gift to a, a genuine need, how do you feel? How do we feel when that request is made? Well, there are a variety of emotions, I think, that course through our veins. But I think there's one initial emotion. It's, it's the, probably the first one that comes out when we're asked to contribute to something in a major way, and that is the emotion of fear. And, and we can describe it in other ways. We can call it a reluctance, maybe, to get involved in something that's so big. We could call it a, a concern. Hey, my budget is already pretty well stretched. I don't know about that, but I need to kind of maintain what I'm doing. Or we might even think of it as stress uh, on our lives. Uh, we already have so many things happening. How can I possibly add one more? Well, 2 Corinthians 9 talks about this whole idea of giving, but it does it in such a way that it removes fear. In fact, it does it in such a way that we become uh, if we are following the guidelines that he gives us, uh, excited about working with God on major projects. Right? That's not going to come from me, is it? I mean, from us? And so initially there is this feeling of, wow, I don't know. I mean, what about the ministry fund here at the church? How are we going to continue that? Well, folks, the exciting news I want to share with you this morning is that Trinity is not looking to people like you and I to meet these funds. What we're looking to is to God to supply these funds to people like you and me so we can give it away generously to others. So, 2 Corinthians 9, God gives us six insights into how we can be more generous people to people in need, organizations that serve Christ, to the body of Christ, his own church, and do so in a way that we find it invigorating, joyful, exciting. So let's take a look at them. Number one, Paul writes in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, be ready and zealous to give. Notice he says, now it is superfluous for me to write, so write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, Corinth, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So Paul's expecting the Corinthians to give. This is a huge expectation on his part. He's already written them one letter and, uh, and talked to them about the importance of being generous with people in need. And now he's sending his buddy Titus along with some other guys uh, that are well-respected with 2 Corinthians to remind them of this earlier offer. And so what he's saying is, I know, I know, it, it's silly to say all of this again. It's superfluous, it's unnecessary, it's above and beyond. But I'm reminding you about your offer to give because it's been a year since you offered and nothing has happened. He's a little concerned. 
Now, he says that he traveled to Macedonia to these other three churches, Berea, Philippi, Thessalonica, and he's boasted of the Corinthians' desire to give. And you notice he just talks about their desire, the zeal. They're ready. They're interested. And then this red-hot enthusiasm from Corinth bleeds into Macedonia, and their hearts are being stoked and fired up to give as well. Like a match to gasoline, they're saying, hey, we have the opportunity to do what Corinth is doing. The fact is, when we're around generous people, we tend to be more generous to give. And when we're around stingy and, and tightwad materialistic people, we tend to become the same way. And so Paul writes to them and he says, hey, the Macedonians are now fired up. Most of them want to give. There were a few still kind of holding back, a few still unconvinced, a few who were still nervous about this whole thing. But he says, you need to be ready and you need to be zealous to give generously. The second thing he tells us is be willing and unforced. We see that in verses 3 through 5. But I'm sending the brothers... Titus, these other individuals, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty or hollow in this matter, so that you'll be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, he says, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to give the brothers, urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. You might underline that in your notes or somehow note it in your Bible. He says, I want this to be willing and unforced, not an exaction. The Phillips paraphrase puts it this way, for between ourselves, it would never do if some of the Macedonians were to accompany me on my visit to you and find you unprepared for this act of generosity. We, not to speak of you, would be horribly ashamed just because we have been so proud and confident of you. So Paul was simply doing what uh, you and I would do if a buddy of ours promised to pick up 20 pounds of carnitas from Asaderos, right, for a high school Mexico loft build fiesta fundraiser. Hey, I'll bring the carnitas. And, and he promised it a month ago. But guess what? We haven't heard anything from him since then. And, and guess what? The festival fundraiser is this Friday night. And so since I haven't heard any word from him, and, and I'm hoping he'll still show up, and high schoolers from every campus around are coming because, hey, it's Mexican food, you send him a text. You say, hey, are you still coming with the carnitas? Because if you don't show up, this is going to look bad for everybody, right? And that's what Paul is doing here. He felt this way about this buffet of giving. He wanted to be sure nobody would be embarrassed. And a matter of fact, if you look in Acts 20, guess who comes with him? Three Macedonian guys. One from Berea, his name was Sopater, and two others from Thessalonica. So sure enough, they came along, and, and Paul was right to ride ahead and, and send Titus and his friends. So what he's saying to us is that our, our giving truly has to come from a willing heart without feeling forced. Look at verse 5. So that your gift may be ready as a willing gift, not an exaction. Do you know another word for exaction? Paying taxes, right? How many of you volunteer every year? Hey, I'd like to pay my taxes. Are you kidding? We pay what we need to, but we're always looking, looking for ways to legally 
lessen the burden. So he says, I don't want this to be grudging. I don't want it to be under compulsion. In fact, he feels so strongly about this that he, he actually uses a very interesting Greek word to talk about how believers are to give. He uses the word prothumos, prothumos. And this is a word that talks about an attitude. Uh, it's a state of mind. And it describes somebody who is willing and eager, in fact, pre-inclined to do someone. It has the sense of rushing forward like an NFL fullback who is eager to punch through the offensive and defensive line and find open running room. How do you like that, football fans? Paul has our back. He says that's the kind of mentality that we should have, this prothumos, who you're just looking for a way to move forward and, and find open running room to give. So he says, hey, your giving needs to be willing and unforced. And folks, let me say to you this morning, if you ever feel pushed into giving to some cause, uh, don't give. Please don't give. If, if you feel like this is an obligation, it's something that people are saying you need to do this, that would just sadden God. And it would also give us the wrong understanding of giving. So Paul says, you need to be ready and zealous to give. You need to be willing and unforced when giving. And thirdly, he says, you need to be bountiful and cheerful in giving. Look at verses 6 and 7. He draws it to a point. He says, hey, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul, to help us understand this further, pulls out his iPhone, looks up his Google photo account, and shows us a picture of a farmer planting seed. And so I brought a small farm with me this morning. As we set up the table, Steve said, don't spill the dirt on the, uh, on the cover. So I'm going to be careful. But we've got some beautiful loamy dirt here. And if I were a farmer and wanted a good crop... I would know that I would have to plant sufficient seed to get the crop, right? If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. So if I took a single pumpkin seed, and I put it right there, and I watered it carefully and tended it, how many pumpkins would I eventually get, do you think? Five, four, five, six, seven maybe? So here's our harvest. These are beautiful oh, pumpkins. Let's put, there's five, let's put six. That's a pretty good ratio, one to six, right? What would happen if I took everything that was in the seed packet and threw it in there? How many pumpkins do you think I would get? That's right. A whole bunch. A whole bunch. And Paul's point is this. God looks at giving, and he says it's very much like farming, where if you put a lot of seed into the soil, you can expect a lot of produce out of the soil. If you're only throwing one or two seeds into the soil as a farmer, well, you're not going to have a whole lot to sell or to use for your own family. And so he uses this agricultural imagery that farmers tell us if you put in, say, 60 pounds of seed... In a good year, you'll get 1,800 pounds of grain. That's 30 to 1. So this imagery is intended to make us think about 
giving in a different way. If you give a little, you gain a little. If you give more, you gain more. If you give bountifully, you gain bountifully. But here's the thing. In the text, this bountiful sowing and reaping is not about an amount of money. It's not. It's an attitude. And the reason we know that is the Greek word is very different than what you see in your text. So if you look at your Bibles, you'll see the word generously, bountifully, right? And that gives us the feeling of a lot of things. But in the Greek text, it says eulogia. You hear this word at memorial services, eulogy. And what it means is blessing. At a eulogy, someone, or at a memorial service, someone stands up and gives the eulogy, and they're blessing the person. They're saying good things about the person. So in this text, what we would better translate it as is whoever sows a blessing will also reap a blessing. You see how that's a different attitude? It takes it away from the idea of how much money are you giving, bountifully or generously, and it puts in the context of where is your heart and where is your head as you give. And so he says, when you look at people in need, when you look at Christian organizations like we're going to do with Advent Conspiracy, when you look at the life of a church like our church, and you think about giving, he says, make sure you do it as a blessing. That's your purpose. That's your attitude. I want to, I want to give so that people will be blessed by this. And I love the fact that that's where God begins this process of the actual giving. And, and by the way, it's in the present tense, and so it, it's saying this is not just a one-off. Hey, I gave last year, I'll, I'll do it again. It's continually, that's what the verb means, to give bountifully a blessing continually because that is how God gives to us. And I think we need to take this to heart. Because, dear friends, if anyone tells you you must give to this thing or that thing to be a better Christian, if they say to you, um, look at how awful these circumstances are, the sob story that you feel you have to give, if you feel like your arm is being twisted by anyone because it's the right thing to do, please say no. And that's what God is saying to us today. Do not give because of those reasons. I think this is one reason why people come to church and they say, please do not talk about giving. And pastors in seminary are told, in seminary are told, it's going to be hard to talk about money. But folks, it's not. When we understand that God is saying, we do need to prepare our hearts, we need to be ready and eager and zealous, but the reason we give is to bless. I know one pastor who has a standing policy and he says to people on a regular basis, if you have given grudgingly this morning, ask an usher and we'll give it back to you. <laughs> I like that. So give intentionally, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. And give hilariously with mirth and pleasure. God loves a cheerful giver. My wife, I asked her if I could tell this story, and she said it was okay, so I'm good there. My wife, before we got married, went on a three-month mission trip to South Africa. In her earlier life, she was a respiratory therapist, and there was a mission hospital there where every single patient had tuberculosis. It was just endemic. And she went down there to help them learn how do you treat tuberculosis. 
And in the course of being down there for those three months, she began to attend church with the, the local uh, Africans, South Africans. And it's a very different experience than here. If you've been in another uh, country and experienced worship, it's always different. But in that uh, particular location, their singing was incredible. Seven-part harmony. Oh, I love hearing their choirs. The preaching was long, two hours, because people had literally walked 10 miles to get there, and they're saying, you're not stopping yet. I had to walk 10 miles to get here, brother. And their offering was oftentimes the highlight of the morning, because to give, the plate would be down front, and they'd begin to sing seven-part harmony, and people would begin to stand, and they would dance down the aisle with their money. And they'd come and lay it in the plate, and they're smiling, and they're high-fiving on the way back. And people, this would take, they would go around and around and around, and Lisa's going, I've never seen that before. In fact, how do you think that would work at Trinity? (laughs) It's a different culture. But you know what they got right that we need to imitate? The joy of giving. It was so obvious they could not wait to give because of all that God had done for them. And Paul writes to us here and he says, hey, God loves a cheerful giver. I like how one commentator puts this. The heart of generous giving is not much as much in the pocketbook or bank account, but in the heart that resolves or determines to be generous. In effect, only the spirit can enable. And so the motive or spirit in which a gift is given is more important than the amount Giving something and later mourning about it or regretting it is not the spirit God loves. A son or daughter needs to emulate their father and our father did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all as an indescribable gift, Romans 8.32. A cheerful giver also emulates God's son who willingly and cheerfully gave all he was and had to meet the needs of the world. The Greek word for cheerful, hilarious, is the root of our English word hilarious. God wants us to give cheerfully because that is how God himself gives. Having this attitude in giving helps us to be unafraid to give. But I think there's something else we need to know, and that's point four. He says, be unafraid in giving. God offers a blessing. Look at verses eight and nine. And God is able, pause there for a minute, It's continual, it's present tense. God is all the time continually able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in, and it's the same word here, all good work or every good work. As it is written in Psalm 112, 9, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. This is describing the Old Testament man who trusted in God. So we need to know this, while it's possible to be afraid to give to God or the needs of others because we're concerned about paying the bills, we're nervous we won't have enough money to save for college for our kids or for that car or that bunk bed or we're nervous about uh, not having enough resources for our business or retirement or a gas of tank to go on a date Friday night. We need to know that God is able to make all grace abound to us continually without shortage without shipping delays, and without reluctance on his part. Folks, this is where we get to the heart of God. As he talks to us about this really important subject, God has the power 
to provide you and I with this unstoppable grace and goodness simply by virtue of his nature and his resources. It's who he is and it's what he does. He's kind of like, if you want to put it into everyday terms, he's like Big Daddy Warbucks of Little Annie, but in a much, much greater way. So as his adopted children, we need to know that he knows our needs, right? He observes our heart and our generosity, and in response to that kind of heart, he's able and he's willing to meet our needs with his great grace. So you're giving... And mine opens the door for God's supply to us of more grace than we can even stand. More abounding grace, exceeding the requirements, over and above, overflowing, which teaches us that God is Dutch. I'm Dutch. My wife is Dutch. When we've been in the Netherlands, if you go to a coffee shop and you ask for a Dutch cup. Now, not Dutch brothers, right? That's a whole different story. You ask for a Dutch cup. Do you know what they do? They bring you the coffee cup, set it in front of you, and if you're a good Dutchman, you put your finger on the, on the rim, and they begin to pour the coffee until it actually touches your finger and overflows just a little bit. Because we Dutch are a little bit tight, right? You know where copper wire came from? Two Dutchmen arguing over a penny? <laughs> But God says to us, look, look, you want a good cup? I will fill it to overflowing. I can take care of your needs in all things at all times, in every way, giving you a sufficiency in all of these things. Pastor Brian Bell writes, do you read here, God will use you up and throw you away? I don't think so. And yet that is usually the way we come to giving. God, you're going to wring me dry. I'm not going to have enough left. I don't know what I'm going to do for these bills. And the reason we struggle with that is we have not yet developed a heart like this that says to God, look, this is your promise to me. You're saying if my heart is this way and I want to be a blessing, then it doesn't matter the circumstances of my life. You will provide for me. Look again at verse 8. God is able. And that's the important part. God is able. To make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. John MacArthur says this, God gives his son to all believers, but as previously noted, he blesses in a unique way generous, cheerful givers. In fact, he blesses such believers on such a grand, immense, staggering scale that it beggars language to express it. Trying to convey the magnanimity of God's generosity, Paul resorted to hyperbole, using a form of the word pos, which means all, five times in verse 8. God's gracious giving has no limits. It's off the scale. Since giving naturally seems to result in having less, not more, it takes faith to believe that giving will open up God's blessing. Christians must believe what God has promised to do, he is able to do. The reason God gives back to those who give is not as prosperity teachers falsely imply and exemplify so people can consume it on their own desires with bigger cars, homes, and jewels. No, God supplies them so they will have an abundance for every good deed. 
The Lord will supply cheerfully givers with what they need to use for what is good work to the honor of the Lord. And he constantly replenishes what they expend so the cycle of giving and ministering to others can continue. Generous givers are the people whose lives are most full of righteous deeds. So Paul says, be ready and willing. Be ready and zealous. Be unforced in your giving. Be bountiful and cheerful in giving. God loves a cheerful giver. Be unafraid because God offers blessing. But look at number five. And I especially don't want you to miss this one. Verse 10 through 12. Now, Paul says, it's like he's summing up. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. So here's our farming imagery again. God does that for the farmer. It's a natural part of sowing and reaping. He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs, not greeds, of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. So folks, where does the money come from to give our gifts to God's work and people's needs? And the obvious answer most of us have, and our world has, it's my wallet, it's my checking account, it's my savings account, it's my credit card. But the correct answer is God himself. And you see the statement in verse 10. Look back there. Now, he who supplies, stop. Who's supplying the money? God is. Our loving Heavenly Father. Just as he gives to the farmer this miraculous process of you plant a seed and you get more. You plant more seeds, you get more. That's a very well-known process in farming In the same way, he says, I will supply your seed for sowing, your gifts for giving, your means to increase righteous actions out of your life. And again, it's present tense, continually. God supplies and multiplies generously. How many of you have ever gone to the Redlands Bowl? I should see many hands. I see a lot of you there when I go with my family, right? Next year is the 100th year. I'm excited about that. I can't wait to see what they do. But what I've also noticed is they always get up in front and they say, hey, tonight we have a sponsor for our program. And and so if you're here tonight, this is the only um, type of drama, the only type of evening under the stars in the nation that does this for free to you. Now, we will take a free will offering. I love the fact that they take offerings there. But somebody paid for that evening at the stars, right? And they usually come out and they're thanked and they're given a plaque of some sort. This was a fun one we went to see. The artistry was done by uh, someone that we know and love. Just beautiful. But those evenings cost money. And someone stepped up and said, I'll pay for that one. And someone else said, oh, I'll pay for that one. And they carry the burden of the cost. In the Greek world, that was called epikorageo. We got our word choreography from it. And epi means above and beyond. So that person paid for the choreography in the ancient world of some local drama. And they were, the, they were the funders for it. And Paul uses this word here to say, 
God is the choreographer of your giving. God is the one who is the sponsor of your giving. How many of us wouldn't leap at the chance to give someone else's money to a good cause? Right? What if someone deposited a billion dollars in your checking account tonight, and tomorrow morning you go and you look and you go, that can't be right, and you discover it is right, but the, the um, requirement is we want you to give it to good causes, to things that will promote the gospel, and you go, I am all for that. Absolutely. That would be such a joy. God does that for us. He is the supplier of our giving. But he only does it when we already have developed this kind of heart that wants to bless others, and we begin to give. And God says, oh, I'm not going to let you run out. Here, let me supply you for that. And we begin to give, and he supplies us some more with that. We talked earlier about uh, R.G. Letourneau. He grew up during the Great Depression. He only got a sixth grade education. At the age of 14, he went to work full-time in a foundry as a molder apprentice. His first day at work, he was asked to haul 10 wheelbarrows full of sand. And he said to himself, there has got to be a better way to move dirt. (laughs) This is in his book, Moving Men and Mountains. You ought to read it sometime. It's a fascinating study in what it means to serve God with a whole heart. Now, his story was not a huge success from the beginning. He went into World War I, fought in the Navy, came back, owned a car dealership, went bankrupt. Uh, At one point, one of his projects, he owed $100,000, and he was going to have the company taken away from him. And it was at that point, he went home to his wife, Evelyn, and he said, Honey, I found a new partner for my business. She said, Really? Who? God. She said, God, yeah, I've decided God's going to be my partner. And I want you to watch this video as it gives a little bit of his history, and then I want to tell you about that conversation he had with his wife. There was this young man named Letourneau who, um, in 1901, ended up leaving school and went to work in a foundry so that he could help support his family. And while he was working at this foundry, he was, as a 14-year-old, a typical boy that was probably more ADHD than most, he would fiddle and play with the things that he had learned during the day. And he began to uh, put together, formulate these implements that would go on machinery for agriculture. And in the course of all of this time and building his creativity, World War I uh, started and he ended up going into the Navy. When he came back from World War I, found himself financially pretty much destitute. He became frustrated with himself after a while because he didn't feel like his career was going anywhere. And in, in a really important conversation that he had with his pastor, his pastor said to him, Please understand, Robert, that God needs Christian businessmen. He, he had grown up as a Christian young man thinking that in order to be used for God's work, you had to be either a pastor full-time or work in the mission field in some foreign country. And he didn't realize that his business and what he was creatively uh, coming up with could be used for God's glory. So uh, he went home that day, talked to his wife, Evelyn, and told her, said, Evelyn, you know, I, I think I'm going to just start 
creating these things that I have going on in my head, these implements and this, these earth moving machines. And um, I'm going to, I'm going to start off with a new business partner. And she asked him who the partner was. And, and he quickly said, I'm, I'm just going to have God as my business partner. And his wife said to him one day, um, maybe what we need to do is stop giving God 10% of our money and us living on 90. Maybe what we need to do is give God 90 and us live on 10. It's not about how much of my money I give God. It's, it's more about how much of God's money I keep for myself. As believers in a household of faith, we are called to support each other and help each other and carry one another's burdens. That's difficult to do if our finances are all locked up and we're in a position where we're living either totally to what we make or beyond our means. So much of what what we talk about here in investing in the lives of, of other Christians um, has to do with the way we see eternity. And when I talk about investing in the life of someone else or investing in the kingdom, I am taking resources that God is giving me here on earth and I'm investing them for eternity. This this time that I have here on the face of the earth is just a preschool. It's like a it's like pre-eternity. It's 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 nothing but a vapor. It's short. And what I invest here versus what I invest in eternity two opposite things I need to consider. I need to look at that and say, am I investing more in my retirement for 20 years on earth than I am my entire retirement in eternity? Am I more concerned about the years that I won't be working while I'm alive versus the years that I'm in heaven? In his book, R.G. Letourneau records this conversation with Evelyn, and he says, I needed to talk with my wife. I said to her, we claim to be in partnership with God, but we aren't really. We have a good year and we give him a tithe as our share. And in the old days, a tithe was forced on people. And they had to give 10% of their income to God, whether they wanted to or not. Now, he says, we aren't compelled to give to God. It's all voluntary. The only thing is, when you consider what God has done for us, we ought to do better for him out of gratitude than the doubters had to do by law. You get right down to it, and we believers aren't doing uh, a bit more than the doubters had to do in the old days. So he says to his wife, let's set up a foundation, a foundation dedicated to God and his works. We give half the stock in the company to the foundation, and we'll keep half for ourselves. Then half of what the company makes goes to the foundation, and half goes to us. Evelyn replied, Bob, that, that sounds fine, but the company's getting so big, and pretty soon it'll be doing all the work. You know what I mean? I didn't, he says, but I could sense what she was driving at. We were a hick from Duluth and a small towner from Stockton. Neither one of us had a high school education. And sales zooming toward a figure that would go over the two million mark for 1935, she was frightened. And now that she had brought the subject up, so was I. You mean, if we just give God half the profits of the company, and I love this phrase, he says, we won't feel anything personal about it. She nodded. Okay, he said, we'll give the company half the profits to the foundation and and we'll give half of our own income to make our giving personal. How does that sound, Evelyn? I thought it sounded fine. But Evelyn wasn't through. (laughs) That still leaves an awful lot. 
He writes, since then, we've been able to increase the holdings of the foundation to 90% of our common stock and 90% of our giving. That's incredible. I only know of one other case where I've heard of it. Um, a pastor and his wife, getting very little income themselves, one month decided, let's do a reverse tithe. Let's give 90% to God and we'll keep 10% and live on it. And they knew they wouldn't pay their bills. They had three kids. But they did, out of faith. Toward the end of the month, they got a check to the penny, literally to the penny of what they had given God. And the check came from the IRS, <laughs> who said to them, you overpaid your taxes, we're sending it back to you. I was like, what? That never happens. But I think they had this sense of, we want to do something great for God. You know, what are we going to be able to do? I don't know, let's try this. And God looked and he said, let me resupply you. And I think the question for us partly today is, are there any Robert and Evelyn Laternos here today? Are there any young businessmen or women, young families, singles, pastors, church leaders, retirees who will trust God's grace and, and step out in faith to see him provide for their needs so that they can give greatly? Young men and women, you guys are still looking forward to the future in many ways. Will you trust God? Supplying your needs to be, give greatly, to have it multiplied, to increase, to enable your abilities to give. I think that's what God wants for us because the last point is this. Point six, generous giving is submissive and confessional of the gospel. It glorifies God. Verses 13 through 15. Paul says, by their approval of this service, the Macedonians and the Judeans in uh, Jerusalem will glorify God. As this money comes to them and meets the need of their famine, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. He doesn't go back to you had a lot to give. He doesn't come back to you guys are wealthy. And by the way, Corinth was the center of the, the world uh, economic system at that time. They had great wealth. But he doesn't go to that. He goes, look, this is all about your confession of the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution, the word is koinonia, that fellowship, that sense of commonality for them and for all others. While they will long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So those that we serve through Advent Conspiracy, those that we serve through the ministries here, through whatever place that we choose to give, they will stand up and applaud us, and they will long for us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that prompted generous giving. I love the fact that this whole idea of giving ends with relationship. This longing. When Lisa was in South Africa for three months before our wedding, oh, I longed to have her back. Back then, if you made a phone call, it was $3 a minute. And we were, and this before cell phones, right? Landlines. If you wrote a letter, it took two weeks to get to them. And we sent cassette tapes, cassette tapes. Took two weeks to get there. She would record a little bit more. She'd send it back. We still have those cassette tapes of our conversation continents away. But there was this longing for each other. And this is what Paul says. When we give, it creates this relationship of them praying for us, longing for us, because we have simply been obedient to the gospel. 
We're going to take communion this morning, and I think this is a good place to transition from the end of this chapter. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And to think about communion. In the New Testament, when you come across the word koinonia, we think of, of fellowship. And the word koinonia literally means um, asphalt. That which is common to everyone. Everyone can drive on our parking lot. It's common. It's the sense of everybody uses it. Everybody is involved with it. And it's used in different ways in the New Testament. So when we share our material resources with people in need, God calls that koinonia. It's a, a giving of material help. When we share our lives with, with fellowship with each other, of time and energy and love, God calls that koinonia. And when we share in the Lord's Supper, God calls that too koinonia. So giving and fellowship and communion all have this in common, this generous sharing. When we think about communion, <clears throat> we remind ourselves of the fact that at one time all of us were separated from God. We were the trolls of C.S. Lewis. We were the orcs of Tolkien. We were separated from the righteousness of God. And in his love for us, he reached out through Jesus Christ and said, I want a relationship with you. But you have a problem. You're part of the enemy's warfare against me. The word of God says, if we are not with Christ, we are owned by Satan. We are blind. Our hearts are hard. We are separated from the life of God. And God said, I don't want that. I want to change that. And so he sent Jesus Christ here to live a life of perfection so this great exchange could happen. His perfection for all of my wrongdoings in the past. Thoughts, actions, behaviors, heart feelings. He said, I want to trade those out so you can become perfect in my sight and Jesus will become your sin on the cross. And that was all because he wanted a relationship with us. He generously shared with us. And so when we come to this table of communion, it is about generosity. It's about sharing, koinonia, the goodness of God. And what you hold in your hands this morning, by the way, there are tables up at the front here as well as the back if you still need to grab uh, a cup of communion. What we hold in our hands represents the body and blood of Jesus. And he said to his disciples, look, my body is going to be broken for you. And my blood is going to be shed for you. This perfect God-man. So that you can have forgiveness of your sins. You can enter a relationship with God if you choose it. And it may be that you're here this morning and you haven't yet chosen to have that gift applied to your heart and to your life. The whiteboard of your life still has all the sins scribbled on it. And you don't know what to do with them. And God says, let me come and erase it all and put up there the person of Jesus, his character, his righteousness. I'll exchange that with you. Free of charge. You don't have to do anything to earn it. Wow, that's, that's an amazing gift. Nobody can buy that. He says, I'll do that for you. But Jesus had to be broken. His blood had to be shed. He had to die in order for that to occur. And so when we take this this morning, we are participating in koinonia, the act of generous sharing. So if you would take the top lid off there. I'm getting better at this every time. Jesus said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you 
as often as you eat of it, do that and remember me. And let's do that together. Jesus took the fourth cup at the Passover, the cup of redemption, and he gave it a totally new meaning. He said, in the past, you had to come through the law. You had to do things perfectly to gain access to God. You had to be cleansed. You had to go through a mikvah. You had to be washed before you came to the temple. He says, now you can come freely into the presence of God because my blood paid for your sins. He said, this is the new covenant, the new agreement between you and God. And as often as you take this cup and drink of it, remember me. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your great generosity to us, your gracious, kind gift of eternal life and transformed life in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you have taught us how to give by giving yourself. You're not a God who is hypocritical, who says, well, you should do this, but that's not something I'm going to do. Thank you that you've taught us to be generous because our heart wants to give a blessing. Generous because we know that we can't outgive you. It's an old saying, but it's true. You resupply whatever we give because it meets the needs of others and creates a blessing. God, help us just to be obedient in our life and in our love. And we ask as we end the service in worship that you would be pleased. In Jesus' name, amen.